Hello, welcome to Seeing Saw, the official Spiral podcast. I'm Catherine Bray, Saw fan and film critic, and chained to a table beneath a slowly descending pendulum blade with me are you guys. I'm Anna Bogutska. I'm an occasional film critic, co-founder of the Final Girls Collective, and Pick That Defender. I'm Charlie Shackleton. I'm a documentary filmmaker and also occasional film critic. And we'll be going to bat firmly against the pig vat in this episode. <laughs> pig vat detractor Charlie Shackleton reporting for duty. So on this show, we are rifling through the gloriously bloodstained library of these films, working our way towards Spiral, a brand new chapter from the Book of Saw. Starring Chris Rock, Samuel L. Jackson, Max Minghella and Marisol Nichols, Spiral from the Book of Saw is out on May 14th or May 17th if you're in the UK. For now though, in this episode, it's the turn of the fifth instalment, Saw 5. There will be nail bombs, electrified bathtubs, literally pints of blood, and there will be spoilers. So if you're new to the franchise, we'd suggest watching Saw 5 and probably all the others too first, then listening to this episode. Before we dig into all of that, Anna, can you set the scene for us? What's going on in the wider world of horror at this time? Well, at this point, I think it's safe to say that it's just Saw. Saw has taken over literally the entirety of the media world because it's no longer just the film franchise. There's a new Saw film every Halloween, every October. It's the horror occasion. And also then there's all of these other Saw properties that are going to be coming out between 2008, when Saw 5 is released, and 2009. Namely, there's the Saw theme park ride, which gets announced in 2008 and then opens the following year with a big celebrity-studded event, including the makers of the Saw films. And also there's a Saw comic book, which has some writing and ideas for traps and storylines from the original creators, James Wan and Lee Whannell, and tries to create a, a prequel of sorts to the story of Jigsaw. And then also there's the Saw video game, which takes place in between the action of the first film and the second film. So at this point, Saw has infiltrated the entirety of horror in all its possible avenues. It's bigger than films. The, it's a the lifestyle. Songularity. <laughs> We're past the songularity. Total worldwide media domination. Saw has become a lifestyle. It's no longer just a franchise. <laughs> and also, I think it's worth noting that this is a film that's directed by David Hackle, who's been involved in the franchise as the production designer. I mean, I think it's a really lovely tradition in horror filmmaking and horror franchising, specifically of elevating previous key creative contributors to the role of director. I really love the fact that it calls back for me to Ginger Snaps, where the editor, Brett Sullivan, stepped up to direct the second film in the trilogy, and then the producer directed the third part. So it keeps it all in the Saw family. And the writers from the previous film, Marcus Dunstan and Patrick Melton, also returned to write this one. It's sort of like repertory theatre. There is a real collective going on there. Yeah, it's the Saw Ensemble. Lovely. And Saw 5, what exactly goes down in this particular film? Professor Charlie Shackleton has his Saw PhD, so over to you, Charlie, for the recap. Thank you very much. Well, yes, so we open on a man named Seth Baxter, who awakes caught in a trap. He is 
pinned down beneath a rapidly descending pendulum, pit in the pendulum style, and told that in order to escape the trap, he will have to put his hands into these two devices that are going to smush his hands. And reluctantly, he does and waits to be released. But wouldn't you know it, the trap doesn't release him. The old pendulum comes right down. The guts go everywhere. It's a very gruesome end for old Seth Baxter. That's our opening. I love that you said reluctant. He did look pretty (laughs) reluctant. (laughs) Well, you would be, I suppose. (laughs) And as he uh, breathes his last breath, we catch a sight of an ominous eye peering through a peephole from the side of the room. Next, as is going to become something of a pattern in the next few Saw films, we open more or less exactly where we left off at the end of the last film. We find Special Agent Peter Strahm trapped in the hospital room from Saw 3, having just been locked in by Detective Mark Hoffman, the new Jigsaw apprentice at large. Strahm finds a tape in the hospital room. The room's sort of scattered with all the corpses from the previous films. It's just Strahm. He finds this tape and it warns him to stay put, stay in the room and effectively give up searching for any further jigsaw apprentices. Let the case lie there. Wait for the other cops to come and save him for the room. Strahm says no, he's going to push on and he ventures into this corridor off the hospital room where he's immediately kidnapped by one of the pig mask helpers and he wakes up in a jigsaw trap that's more like an execution trap. So his head is in a glass box, it's rapidly filling with water and there's no way out or so we think because Special Agent Peter Strahm has a handy biro in his pocket and he does the old classic, the makeshift tracheotomy, and he survives just long enough to be rescued by the cops. And they've set that up beautifully because Strahm is always playing with a pen in previous instalments. I love it. Mm. He uses pens. They knew that they were going to do that. (laughs) Next, several things happen that I won't be mentioning again in the rest of this plot synopsis because they're not actually relevant to this film. They're just set up for future films. But maybe commit these to memory. We see Jill Tuck, Jigsaw's ex-wife, opening a box that she's been left by Jigsaw. She's given it by the executor of his will. We don't see what's inside the box. We see investigative journalist Pamela Jenkins asking a question at a news conference that's been held to announce the death of Jigsaw and the end of the Jigsaw reign. We see Detective Mark Hoffman receiving a letter in his office that says, I know who you are. We don't know who that's from. And then forget all that because we're back in the plot and uh, Special Agent Peter Strahm is at the hospital. He's recuperating from the old pen in the throat trick and also mourning. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good trick. It's a fantastic trick. It's a party trick. trick. That's why he always has pens around. I mean, he survived, didn't he? He did survive. That's the point of a trick. (laughs) (laughs) If you come out of a trick alive, you're up on the deal. And he's also, of course, mourning his colleague, Special Agent Lindsay Perez, who you'll remember died in the last film, having had Billy the Puppet explode at her. At this juncture, he gets the bad news that he's being taken off the Jigsaw case by his boss, Special Agent Dan Erickson, for a variety of reasons. He's just sort of too close to it. Obviously, he's injured. You can tell he's injured because he talks throughout this scene and the rest of the film with a Bane voice. <laughs> um, and it's, it's time acting, Charlie. It's time for him to come off the case, says Special Agent Dan Erickson. Meanwhile, back at his workshop, Detective Mark Hoffman pulls one of the classic jigsaw theatrical cloaks from a new set of dioramas, a new set of video surveillance monitors, revealing a new game is afoot. And lo and behold, we then cut into the game where five new jigsaw victims, there's former fire inspector Ashley Kazon, journalist Charles Solomon, 
city planner Luba Gibbs, property developer Britt Stevenson, and the drug addict Malik Scott, who all wake up in the first of a series of traps. They listen to a, a jigsaw tape, and the tape essentially accuses them of only ever looking out for themselves, being a bit selfish, not being willing to help their fellow man, and tells them that in these traps, quote, five will become one with the common goal of survival, and implores them to, quote, do the opposite of their instincts. I'm pretty sure that's a Spice Girls song as well. <laughs> big fan, Jigsaw, big fan. <laughs> Back at the station, having begun to suspect Hoffman of being a Jigsaw accomplice, Special Agent Peter Strom now begins to revisit old Jigsaw case files, which, incidentally, is where I'm getting all of the surnames of all of the characters from all of the Saw films. That attention to detail, Professor Shackleton, you're really spoiling us. Including the case files of Seth Baxter, the man killed by the pendulum at the beginning of the film, whose death is revealed to have taken place a long time ago, early on in the reign of Jigsaw. Strom discovers that Seth had himself killed Detective Mark Hoffman's sister, Angelina Acom, and concludes, therefore, that Hoffman must have been involved somehow. It's not a bad conclusion. Back in the traps, the group proceed through each room and in each one must complete a task and reach safety before a nail bomb goes off, killing them all. They soon start to sort of turn on each other, accusations are flying around the room, and lo and behold, in each room, one of them invariably doesn't make it. So Ashley Kazon is decapitated by a sort of bladed shelf thing. In the shape of a V or a five. Oh, that's oh. a much better way of putting it. Isn't it lovely? I love it. <laughs> Charles Solomon, the journalist, is blown up when he fails to find a key in time for a series of tunnels that are places they can hide from one of the bombs in one of the rooms. Luba Gibbs is killed by the others to be used as a conductor for a series of electrified clamps that they have to connect to each other in order to open one of the doors. I'm sure we'll be talking about all of these traps in more detail later. And along the way, they piece together what it is that connects them. It turns out all of them are culpable in one way or another for an arson attack in which eight people were killed to make way for a redevelopment project. So they're bad guys. Well, life's complex moral tapestry, isn't it? In a Saw film, absolutely. And in real life as well. But more so in a Saw film. That's where you really tackle morality's big questions. It's much more complicated than real life. Strom continues his investigation of Hoffman, and in the course of that, we flash back to Hoffman's first encounter with Jigsaw. It's revealed that Hoffman had indeed murdered Seth Baxter and just set it up like a Jigsaw trap, albeit an extremely complicated Jigsaw trap, and tried to pin the killing on Jigsaw. Jigsaw didn't like that very much, so he kidnaps Hoffman and blackmails him into collaborating on most of the jigsaw traps that we know and love from over the years. So we see Hoffman was present for the preparation of the Deadly House from Saw 2, that he was present in the preparation of the hospital room scene trap thing from Saw 3. He was been there all along, essentially. He was just off screen, off camera. Kind of a full, full rewrite. This is not Saw history as we thought we knew it. It's a brand new game. There's always one more layer to the onion. Beautiful. That's poetic. I like it. Thank you. Back in the present, Hoffman himself starts to throw suspicion onto Strom with the help of Jigsaw's ex-wife Jill Tuck, who's revealed to have been in on the ongoing Jigsaw games all along. 
And in their final trap, back in the uh, series of rooms, the two surviving victims, Brit and Malik, are asked to collectively drain themselves of ten pints of blood in order to open the final door. And it's at this juncture that they realise the the true meaning of Jigsaw's statement earlier on about five becoming one, not just an allusion <laughs> to his favourite British pop act of the 1990s, but also advice not to whittle down their numbers, but to work together. And indeed that each of the traps thus far could have been done collaboratively. So in the first trap, they had to get a key to get the chains off their necks. They assumed they all had to compete to get their own key. Actually, any of the keys would have worked across all of the chains. In the second trap, they could have climbed into the safety pipes together. There was room for more than one of them in each one. And in the third trap, they could have held each of the electrified clamps, one apiece, and then held them together in the centre, and they would have only got a little shock each. And indeed, if they'd done that, they could have got to the end and only had to give two pints of blood each, which would have been more manageable than what they're now faced with, which is this torturous donation of five pints of blood each, They do it and barely conscious, just about make it to safety, having completed all of the traps. Meanwhile, using Strom's phone, Hoffman lures Special Agent Dan Erickson to the location of the literally just completed games, where he concludes that Strom must be responsible and have been the new Jigsaw accomplice all along. Strom himself follows Hoffman to a house where he finds a room with a sort of massive glass coffin box In the centre of it, suspended at an angle, there's a tape. He plays the tape and it says that getting inside the box is the only way to leave the room alive. Hoffman surprises him in the room. They have a scuffle and Strom forces Hoffman into the box instead of himself. It's only at this point that Hoffman gestures to the tape and it reveals that he has basically given Hoffman the only way out of the room. And as the glass box begins to descend safely into the floor, the walls close in Star Wars style around them, slowly crushing Strom to death, just as he becomes suspect number one in the Jigsaw case. Hoffman is away in safety, and that's that. With a wonderful expression on his face. I mean, you can say what you like about this one, but that expression on Hoffman's face as he recedes safely into the floor is an all-timer. It is arguably one of the greatest dramatic exits in cinema history. (laughs) I agree. And that is all of the plot synopsis, right? Yeah, that's it. What, you want more? No, no, no. no. That was was like watching the movie anew. Thank you. I realise that that is remarkably straightforward relative to our plot synopsis from last week. It is striking how much more straightforward and simplified the plot of this one is relative to Saw 4, which we covered on the last episode, where there's always six different strands happening at once. They just sort of strip it back a little bit. It's streamlining the story. Yeah. It's gaining in complications. Oh, and nuance. And how? And characters. Mm-hmm. And rivalries. Oh, yes. We're going to talk, I'm sure, about the Hoffman Strom rivalry that emerges in this film. Let's talk about it now. Yes, please. Okay. <laughs> are you Hoffman or are you Strom? I'm Hoffman. I'm a Hoffmaniac. I love this guy. I'm part of the Stromy army. What do you like about Strom? He is a better detective. That's it. I love a man who's good at his job, and Strom is good at his job. He's won you over with competence. Yes, he has. That's the only thing it takes. It does, actually, in this film, he does do some good deductive reasoning based on things that we get to see in flashback, and he presumably just imagines. (laughs) 
Yeah, he's a visual thinker. And so why do you accept that in Sherlock Holmes, but you do not accept that in Special Agent Peter Strom? I accept it here. And I think what's nice is compared to Saw 4, where you're often three or four steps behind the plot, Strom will also announce what he's worked out. (laughs) So when he's at the Seth Baxter crime scene and he's just putting it all together, he says, to no one, you killed him, made it look like a jigsaw trap. (laughs) (laughs) He's talking to himself. He's making mental notes. Well, he's talking to Hoffman, but he's not there. It's nice when people talk to themselves in a Saw film. I find it very endearing. And, you know, hats off to him because as an acting challenge, it is his head underwater. Mm-hmm. You can't get a stunt guy in there because the whole premise of the trap is that you can see his face and that he's running out of water. And presumably that's actually quite a dangerous thing to do with like one of your leads. Yeah, well, this, I guess, in the same way that the tape is Jigsaw's ode to the Spice Girls, this trap is Jigsaw's ode to Radiohead. <laughs> <laughs> They love a 90s banger in this film. <laughs> yes, they do. And we appreciate it. What um, about you, Charlie? For me, I have to be a Hoffmaniac. Have you seen his adorable little centre parting in this film? <laughs> well, he's ahead of the times. He looks absolutely precious. More Y2K fashion in the Saw franchise. But, and as Catherine said, when he's descending into the floor and you see his little boyish grin, it's like his birthday party's gone well and off he goes into the floor, the blood's raining down on him. Who wouldn't love that? And I think it must be CGI blood because he doesn't flinch or react to it at all. So he's either, you know, world-class actor able to completely ignore the presence of blood flying towards your face. He's not going to flinch. He's a criminal mastermind. He's not going to flinch at the sight of a bit of blood. I do appreciate, as much as I am a part of the Strami army, I do appreciate Costas Mandalore's acting chops in this film in particular, because he is both giving us Hoffman the new Jigsaw and Hoffman the detective pretending to be investigating Jigsaw. Yeah, and I think they also get my favourite scene in this one, which is the little chat that Jigsaw has with Hoffman about ripping off his sweet style and trying to kind of plagiarise the murder scene. Yes, the immortal line when Jigsaw, for one of the very few times in the franchise, raises his voice to go, killing is distasteful. (laughs) So good. Do we think that's a throwback to Hannibal Lecter? We've mentioned Hannibal Lecter before, but the fact that Jigsaw uses the word distasteful, it's like, that is beneath us. We are superior murderers. We do not deign to actually physically murder someone. We need to give them the choice to murder themselves. That idea that there's a bit of a code, the sort mm. of the manners, the refinement of the serial killer. Yeah, he dresses very well in this instalment. It's my favourite ensemble, the bit where he's in the lift behind Mark Hoffman. Oh, yes. Oh. And he's in this beautiful duster. He's a refined older gentleman. It's um, He's wearing leather gloves as well in that one, isn't he? He's wearing he? leather gloves. Mm. And then in the subsequent scene, he's got this little teacup that apparently Tobin Bell had a hand in choosing and felt to be right for the character of Jigsaw. And again, it feels extremely right for Jigsaw. Wait, when does he have a teacup? He has a little teacup when he's Mm -hmm. talking to Mark Hoffman. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's another nice detail from Tobin Bell, who, of course, I don't always believe it when producers and directors say, oh, yes, so-and-so really had a hand in shaping this character. I don't think that that's always true or indeed always welcomed by producers and directors. But I think with Tobin Bell, they were like, he knows the character better than we do at this point, and they let him rewrite a lot of his own lines. Talking of appearances... We need to cover the fact that both Hoffman and Strom look identical. (laughs) Identical might be pushing it, but I mean, I've never had a problem with telling them apart in this film because you just have to look for the little tracheotomy plaster on Strom, which he's wearing throughout. Maybe that's why they gave it to him, so that you'd have a guide. You see, you say that, 
And I just do not get it. Really? I just do not get it. I mean, yes, sure, fine. They are two very tall, broad shouldered, classically handsome men. But all I see is Luke from Gilmore Girls and the hot priest from Sex and the City. Okay, so you're both <laughs> you've both got a bit of help then with telling them apart. But I think the very fact that you're using these special tricks and tips is proof enough. But this is I'm twins. just very aware of the previous oeuvre of Scott Patterson and Costas Mandalore. Fair. But this is first time watching stuff, isn't it? Like I've seen people be confused between the two of them on their first time. Once you've watched them 12 times. I would say it was my first through ninth time (laughs) where I had trouble. (laughs) Now I will say I'm on top of it. Yeah, but uh, maybe you just have facial blindness. Well, no, I mean, I think the film is saying, you know, good and evil are sort of two sides of the same coin and, you know, it's moral complexity. Stepping away from the characters, there's a bit of a tonal shift with Saw 5, I think. It's coming away from, I think in Saw 4, we had a rapist being dismembered and this one's a little bit more of a carnival funhouse. It's victims who are morally murky and I think the trap's a bit more of a funhouse vibe as well. It's more of a team building exercise. There is a morality lesson at the heart of the main game of the film, isn't there? It's almost a little bit of that, that sort of corporate team building gone horribly wrong vibe. And, you know, continuing my whole idea of the fact that Jigsaw is kind of a micromanager, he is in this film very much teaching Detective Hoffman how to take on the mantle of Jigsaw, both on practical terms and on morale building or morale maintaining terms. So it makes sense. It is a workplace team building exercise. He becomes like a Yoda-esque type figure. Yeah, I think there's definitely more of an atmosphere of fun here, not least because it is a little bit simpler and more straightforward that you're not straining to follow it as much. Although I have to say personally, I kind of enjoy the work that you have to do sometimes with these films to stay on top of the plot. I will say for me, there's a bit of a the fact that we know more than a lot of the characters throughout most of the film makes it a strange viewing experience. And different to a lot of the Saw films that have come before it where we're a little bit lost for most of the runtime. Here we're often ahead of the characters and it's Strom that we get to watch working things out mm. or other cops. Yeah, and Strom also becomes the audience surrogate. And in a way, this film both continues the franchise and complicates it in really delightful ways, but at the same time resets it enough with new key characters and someone, Detective Strom, who functions as a way for us to understand and unpick the plotting, that it becomes a very nice first entry point into the franchise, I believe. I think the... Traps, which we're going to talk about in a trap versus trap sense in a minute. But I think shout out to David Hackle, who obviously production designed all of Saw up to this point, stepping into the director's chair. But it's not like him stepping into the director's chair meant that they were going to let the production design and the traps fall by the wayside. I would say that actually it's one of the big strengths of Saw 5 that the traps are so much fun. Real blockbuster traps. I mean, that pendulum at the beginning, Mm. that's an opener and a half. And then straight to the cube box drowning head trap. I mean, either of those are a contender for a strong opener to the film. And a great closer as well. Yeah, fantastic closing trap. I think, I guess the the Fatal Five, their traps, maybe a little bit more lost, but I like the idea of that you think you're watching oppositional traps and actually mm. you weren't. That sort of rug pull. I guess that's the twist with Saw 5 is that idea that these traps were all totally survivable by all five of them, which is not normally the case. I'll give you that as a good reveal. Now, as you all know, if you've been following the pod, it just wouldn't be an episode of Seeing Saw without our regular feature, Jigsaw's Trap Race pitting the traps of the franchise against one another. 
unlike Saw 5, we will not be revealing later that all they had to do to win the trap race was to work together to win trap race. So in round one, the bathroom trap won the day before going on to lose to the Razorbox hand trap from the second film. In round three, the Razorbox faced off against the Pigvat and the Pigvat won. The Pigvat then went up against the hair chair trap from Saw 4 with the Pigvat and its live maggots retaining the title Controversially, Charlie was uh, very much against that. Charlie was wrong. Yeah, there's no risk of working together on these anymore because I'm <laughs> too burned by my experience with the pig vac coup, as I call it. The pig vac coup. <laughs> Unbelievable dissension. Anyway, before we can figure out the ultimate winner of this episode, could be the pig vac again. Who knows? We no, there'll be a riot. There'll be a riot in the recording booth if the pig vat wins again. We it'll will a, it'll be a two-host show next week. <laughs> we will, of course, need to determine the best of the traps from Saw Five, and it's a strong film for traps. We've talked a little bit about the pendulum trap, but let's get into that one a little bit more. It's obviously an homage to Edgar Allan Poe, The Pit mm-hmm. and the Pendulum, that short story, I think it is. They really go for it with this one. The pendulum is massive. It's coming down very slowly and they're not holding back on the guts. I think it's slightly different in the rated version, but I think the unrated version, he gets a line slightly after he's been cut in half, Seth Baxter. He says something like, but I did what you told me to do, which is really funny and cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a classy trap. It's a dramatic trap. But also I feel like it doesn't really relate to the moral sins of Seth Baxter. He's not an acolyte of Jigsaw at this point in the narrative. This is a copycat trap. It's true. It's not even a canonical trap. Yeah. So I think the fact that it's non-canonical probably rules it out of as a potential winner do we think i would agree yeah jigsaw of course in his confrontation with mark hoffman calls it inferior work which i will say is a little rich given that i think at this point in the chronology jigsaw is building like rickety chairs with knives that you push your face through this is like a full-scale room with a big pendulum in it that's a really good point because i hadn't really scrutinized that before of course in terms of where jigsaw is at in his evolution as an engineer Do we think maybe this critique is coming from a place of jealousy? Mm, Could be. Mm, I'm going to take Jigsaw's side here, guys, because, fine, he's maybe beginning in his career as a serial murderer, but he is a pretty established and well-respected engineer. So I think it comes from a, a place of professional superiority that he says it's inferior work. Yeah, it's inferior conceptually, I suppose, because there's no way to escape. It's all about the vision. It's wonderful prosthetics work because most of that guy lying on the table is a dummy because you can't hang a mm-hmm. massive metal pendulum over an actor's body safely. So for sort of 90% or something of the shoot, that it looks like a real guy, but it's not. It's just an expensive dummy. They didn't do it to a real guy. Well, it's the guy's head. But there's this lovely feature, as I always refer to on the lovely DVD featurette, that you can see it's sort of his shoulders and then it turns seamlessly into a dummy. So he's supposedly sitting underneath the table with his little head popping out and then there's a dummy guts-filled prosthetic that gets cut up in half. Exactly. It's super impressive production design because you look at it and it just looks like a guy, obviously. But I think it must have been so uncomfortable for the actor. Imagine that's your gig is showing up to be Seth Baxter and just get cut in half. All right, the Radiohead box. The Radiohead. (laughs) The water cube. I love the way that scene is lit. Mm, uh, Gorgeous. Coming up and it's almost like his head's been cut off and it's in the box and then... The lighting gradually comes on around him. More fantastic work from series DIP David Armstrong. It's quite simple as well. It does feel like it harkens back to the days of the bathroom trap. But obviously it's on more of a 
clock then that one he's going to solve it pretty quickly yeah i like the aesthetic certainly i think it has a good simplicity but again ultimately there's no way to escape it it's more just a sort of execution trap there yes. is a way to escape it he escapes it well there's not well, meant to be i think i agree with charlie here it's not designed to be escapable it's designed just to straight up murder strom which is why hoffman is so surprised when he makes it out alive and it's only because he is such a good detective and so good with a pen that he manages to escape. Great penmanship. Okay, so the meat of the film, obviously, the mm-hmm. five traps. The fatal five, Enid Blyton's favourite. The four traps that our five victims befall. What do we think of those? The first one, of course, is when they wake up with the chains around their necks and they have to get the keys, lest they be kind of pulled back onto the V-shaped blade. What do you think of that? I like this one. I think, again, it's shot very effectively. The lassie who gets decapitated there's a nice attention to detail if you look at the corpse in the background when the rest of her colleagues is that the right word former fire inspector ashley kazon yes ashley kazon she's twitching and moving after the head's been knocked off and that's lovely incidental background detail i like that they cared to do that i always enjoy whenever there's a collective in one of these films i always enjoy trying to guess who's going to be the one who gets picked off almost immediately mm-hmm. because they tend to get one or two character-defining lines and then, of course, they're gone mm. before you know it. And did you guess correctly in this case? Well, yes, but only because I've seen this film 45 times before. <laughs> I thought he really plays it as well, like he's the guy who's going to get bumped off early doors, first or second trap, the junkie guy who actually makes it to the final 10 pints of sacrifice trap. I actually thought it was the journalist guy who would get bumped up first because of the smugness. Smug characters usually <laughs> God, don't I last very long. willing for him to get bumped <laughs> off. Oh, Absolutely poor. can't stand journalist Charles Solomon. So why don't we move on to the one that does him in, the ceiling jars, where he just begins randomly bashing all of these jars, looking for keys that will let them into these safety tubes there's a bomb in the room like there always Mm -hmm. is a bomb in the room in this film but there's no real risk with smashing the jars to get the keys out i think it's just the time pressure it's the fact that they have a very how long do they have before the bomb will explode i think yeah 60 seconds or something Mm. but also charles is like you know they're all really selfish obviously but charles is just smashing the glasses and they're not even looking for the keys so no wonder when they all get the keys before him and he's left there to be really and truly done in. So actually, are you saying that he was trying to work as a team and he got punished because of the selfishness of his team members? Mm-hmm. I had completely misremembered this one as someone just stabs him and he doesn't go through to the next round. Well, yes, he tries to do in Malik and get the last key. But at the last moment, I think it's uh, Luba who mm-hmm. does him in and saves Malik. And I was watching this with some housemates who hadn't seen it before, and they all said, well, why doesn't why don't they just get in the tubes together? Because there's enough room. And I was like, well, you might be a little ahead of the film here. <laughs> electric bathtub. We fans of the electric bathtub. It's pretty good. I think this one is better for the reveal of they were meant to work together, because then you can imagine it. Mm-hmm. Viewing it outside of that possibility, when you, they just enter and there's three of them, the way they approach it by murdering Luba and just using her body as the conductor seems, I guess, like the only way to do it. And I was sad to see her go. Lovely actor, very good in Eve's Bayou opposite Samuel L. Jackson. Now, this one was not my favourite, to be honest. It sounds like we're lukewarm on the bath. Ten Pints of Sacrifice. I mean, this I find, I think, the hardest to watch in this film. This is one of those ones where 
again, I think it comes back to those teeth, hands, those mm. kinds of traps where you can imagine putting your hand accidentally through a buzzsaw if you've ever done any woodworking. So I think it's quite a relatable trap and that's quite kind of horrible. It is quite horrible to watch. I have to say, this is probably my favourite one out of the Fatal Five trials because of the dramatic reveal because of them realising that they should have worked together all along and of how simple and elegant it is. Yeah, it really captures that phenomenon where often the real horrors of this franchise are just minor pains taken to extremes. Mm -hmm. You could imagine what it is to give blood. You could imagine what it is to cut your finger or your hand. But what if you had to do that so severely that you gave five pints of blood? <laughs> it's not very much like the giving blood experiences that I've had in my and life. And it kind of harkens back to one of our favourites from a previous film from Saw 2, The Razor Box, where it's very simple. It's, I mean, relatable is not an appropriate word for any Saw trap, but you can very almost feel the effects of the trap, but also you can see a simple way out. But unfortunately, because of humans not being very nice, that possibility is out the window. And I think we can probably rule out the shotgun chair. Do we feel that's not really a sufficiently elaborate or baroque yeah, trap? Yeah, it's more yeah, of a sort really of count. way to menace someone than yeah. a trap. It's workshop business. Yes. Okay, so potentially saving the best for last, the glass coffin, the crusher room. I've got questions. Oh, Ooh, okay. Because I love this trap. I'm just going to get that in there first before these questions of yours. Me too. This is going to be the pick fat situation all over again. When Strom arrives at the room with the glass coffin in it and listens to the tape, obviously we know what happens, that the glass box becomes his only salvation. He fails to take the offer. But the tape says, pain will be incurred, but you will have a chance of survival if you get in the box. And my questions are, A, it's not a chance of survival, it's definite survival. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and B, why will pain be incurred? Because there's glass on the bottom of the coffin, isn't there? Yeah, but it's just like a little bed of glass. It's just I think if you're wearing a full suit and you lay down on a bed of glass, you'll be fine. As indeed Hoffman is when he ends up in that exact well, predicament. Well, we don't get a fully nude scene, so we don't know whether he actually got caught by the bed of glass. Well, so I will add as further background information for my questions, that I did do a bit of research about this particular trap. And indeed, it was originally going to be used in the previous film, in Saw 4, because we see a brief glimpse of it in Saw 4 in Jigsaw's workshop. Mm -hmm. And apparently, one of the characters who appears very fleetingly in that film, a man who's in the hotel, the motel rather, that Rig passes through, Mm -hmm. was going to be put in this box and have to find a key or something, but he was going to be naked. And that, I can see, maybe not ideal if you're going to be mostly nude in a glass box full of glass. Is there any chance, do you think, that that line could be a classic misdirect designed to make him not get in the box? Don't get me wrong. The whole thing is great theatre. I love watching Hoffman in the box descend into the floor. I absolutely love watching Strom get all smushed and his arm get snapped like a twiggler. The bone pops out. It's great prosthetics work. It's fantastic. Here's why I think that this deserves to win the trap of film five, Saw 5. And it's just because how many times have you seen the walls closing in on somebody in a film 
and it actually crushes them. I don't think you've ever seen that. They never get smushed. In <laughs> they a never film. get smushed. They, we get, that is we true. go full schmush in this film. And I really think you're not expecting it because you've seen Strom is a hero of this film. You've seen him escape from the cube in the box thing. You think surely that he's going to get out of this one. And probably because it's a Saw film, the villain will escape too. But. Yeah, smushed Strom. I think that's the, as you say, it it wins on a theatrical level. Mm. Have I talked you around? I think I've got to talk Charlie around. I think Anna. I'm with you. Anna's with me. Oh God, it's happening again. <laughs> You're being pig vatted again. <laughs> the Stromy army. Can I, oh, I don't know. I'll quickly bring the water cube back into play to try and bring you around. You've talked against the water trap. What I would know, you... I'm my own worst enemy. <laughs> I've undermined all of my potential lifelines. But there might be a silver lining. If we're saying that the winner of Saw 5 is the glass coffin trap, then that's going up against the pig vat, our current reigning champion. So, Charlie, given that you're not totally sure about either of these traps, which would you pick between the pig vat and the glass coffin? I think what we've done here is we've preferentialised the (laughs) grand... And the over the top, um, we've gone for a show. And what we've lost is the kind of pure essence of some of Jigsaw's most kind of contained and, to my mind, beautiful traps. You've picked the kind of immersive theatre traps. And now I must pick between them. That's what you're telling me. Yes, that is your trap. A fiendish dilemma worthy of Jigsaw himself. It's the trap trap and the victim is Charlie. Okay, well, we've got to get the pig vat out of here, so I'm going with Glass Coffin. (laughs) Okay, Anna, what's your take? You know what? I think the twist of this episode is that uh, the pig vat will prevail. No. Sorry, I was so stunned by that. I couldn't even react. Are you seriously going to put the pig vat through for a third episode? I will. The pig vat? Yes, the pig vat. The emotional horror will continue to get me. Pig vat? Pig vat. So to recap, the pig vat is a judge drowning slowly in soup of pig entrails against the clock while a man decides whether or not to burn his dead son's beloved possessions. And he also gets saved. It is an escapable trap with a huge emotional background to it. Versus the glass coffin. Now, I get to decide. Sense has to prevail, surely. Got the casting vote. Much as I would really like to annoy Charlie. I feel like there's honesty to the Saw franchise that I owe at this juncture. So rather than purely trolling Charlie Shackleton, I am going to go with the glass coffin. I do think it's a better trap than the pig fat. Anna, you're looking at me like I'm, I've gone mad with power. <laughs> I mean, it is fitting for the fifth entry of this podcast. I mean, to be honest, I love both traps. So I'm happy for the glass coffin to continue on. So you don't feel like Strom caught in a glass coffin trap and I'm Hoffman just looking at you like... I do not feel smushed at all. (laughs) Okay, I think we've got our winner then. I think the glass coffin is triumphing over the pig fat. I will say, actually, I also love the glass coffin. It's more beautiful. It's more aesthetically pleasing. I'll give you that. I do think that the walls closing in over the camera... And our last shot being Mark Hoffman's mm-hmm. little face as he looks so Perfect pleased is pretty great. It's beautiful yeah. stuff. And I think we've run out of time. So, Charlie, what have we got to look forward to next episode? Saw 6. Well, we're going to the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> In a delightful twist. 
large portions of the film take place in an abandoned zoo. We'll look forward to that. Anna, any specific moments for you? Well, we also get to go on a deadly merry-go-round. Fantastic. Love the merry-go-round. Now, as we know, just because Jigsaw is dead, that doesn't mean his work stops. And 17 years after the release of the first film, a new Saw film is just weeks away. Spiral from the Book of Saw is out on May 14th or May 17th for our UK listeners. Maybe book in advance and leave nothing to chance. Thanks so much for listening. And please remember to rate, review and work together to survive the maze of death through teamwork and collaboration. Seeing Saw is a Little Dot Studios production for Lionsgate. The show is hosted by Catherine Bray, Anna Bogutskaya and Charlie Shackleton. It is produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel with production support from Ellie Aitken. And we're edited by Content is Queen. Ah, my foot. Anna. It cannot be again. We're trapped in Catherine's trivia trap. Well, this is a trivia trap that's trivia about a trap. David Hackle, the director of Saw 5, it was actually his young son who originally pitched his dad the idea of a walls-closing-in trap. And that was then planned in the film to be a room that would fill with water and drown Strom while Hoffman escaped in an airtight box. As you know, that's not what happens. That proved very tricky to stage. So the water element became the water cube trap. And the misdirection of Hoffman's final confrontation with Strom became the classic crushing walls trap that we all know and love. (laughs) 